I want to welcome you to our daily drive time devotions through the book of Romans. This week we are in Romans chapter 3, and as with each week, we are taking a, a week, five days together, to look at a chapter of the book of Romans. These last few weeks, we've looked at the reality of sin in Romans chapter 1 and then chapter 2. We're going to continue that look at the reality of sin for the first half of this chapter and then hold on for a refreshing U-turn. The excitement that God has a new plan shows up towards the end of this chapter, towards the middle of this week. You're going to be glad that you hung on until chapter 3. As chapter 3 begins, it's as if we enter the courtroom with Paul for some final arguments on the reality of sin. He's already made the case that we are all without excuse, both because of God's creation and our conscience. And he's shown clearly that we have all sinned, those who know they've sinned, those who judge others for their sin, and those who seemingly are more moral than others. And now come some final arguments. First, what I would call final arguments for the defense in chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. In this section, Paul confronts a couple of arguments against what he's been saying. He defends against these arguments. Let me read those verses to you, chapter 3, verses 1 to 8. What advantage, then, is there in being a Jew? What value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. And then another question. What if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all, is the answer. Let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument, Paul says. Certainly not, is his answer. If it were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness, and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? (laughs) Why not say, as we are being slanderously reported as saying, and as some claim we say, let us do evil that good may result? Their condemnation is deserved. In these verses, the Spirit, through Paul, confronts three specific arguments. First, in verses 1 and 2, what advantage is there in being a Jew? Paul has said there is no difference between Jew and Gentile in our need of Jesus Christ. So the question is, well, is there any advantage in being a Jew? Paul's answer is, much in every way. In fact, he says there's the greatest advantage. Those who are Jews have God's word in the Old Testament entrusted to them. That is an incredible advantage in coming to know the reality of who God is and how he wants to work in our daily lives. In fact, We're going to see throughout the book of Romans that God shows his incredible respect and great plan for the Jewish people again and again and again. There is a second question that's brought against Paul in these verses. The question is, does our lack of faith prove God unfaithful? In verses 3 and 4, the answer there is not at all. In the Greek, that is meyanito, not at all in NIV, by no means in the Revised Standard Version. God forbid in the King James Version. This is a very strong statement, a not in a thousand years could this ever be true kind of statement. The idea that our lack of faith could prove God unfaithful is just false. Our lack of faith does not prove that God is faithless. It only proves that we are faithless. In this section, Paul says, let God be true. Even though we might be false, Let God be true. Let God be who he is. John Calvin calls that phrase, let God be true, the primary axiom of all Christian philosophy. If you really want to get truth, 
If you really want to understand the philosophy of truth, the beginning point is let God be true. Let God be true and recognize that our lack of faith doesn't prove him unfaithful, but it shows us to be unfaithful. The argument here goes something like this. If my unrighteousness shows God's righteousness, how can I how can I be to blame for my unrighteousness? In fact, my unrighteousness is even a good thing because somehow it shows God's righteousness. Now, it's a ridiculous argument, of course. It's like, well, if you're a parent, it's like one of your kids saying, if my not cleaning my room shows how clean the rest of the house is, my not cleaning my room is a good thing. You just laugh at that. Or it's, it's like somebody at work saying, if my laziness at work shows how hardworking others are, how can you reprimand me for playing video games all day? These are just ridiculous arguments, such obvious arguments. So why does the Holy Spirit through Paul even address these arguments? Because it was an important question of the day. And there's two very simple applications to the fact that Paul addressed these arguments. Application number one is we ask silly questions when we're trying to excuse our sin. We all do. We get confused. We want to excuse what we've done, even though we know that it's wrong. And so we ask silly questions trying to make some excuse for our sin. We have all kinds of ways of covering our sin, and they all sound just about as silly as these arguments that Paul was confronting. That's the first application. But the second application is this. Silly questions deserve an answer. It amazes me that God's Spirit, through Paul, answered these questions. God took these questions seriously enough to make sure he gave an answer. If you have silly questions, ask God. He answers all kinds of questions because he cares about us. He loves us. Well, there's a final question that Paul confronts in these first few verses, and that's the question, is God unjust? And again, the answer is certainly not. How can he judge us is the questionnaire. Shouldn't he thank us for our sin? Because it somehow shows his grace and makes him look better, somewhat like the previous argument. And Paul says, certainly not. That could never be true. And this brings him to his, what I would call, his final argument for the prosecution. This is in verses 9 to 20. In Romans chapter 3, verse 9, the Bible says, What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. All under sin. In this final argument for the prosecution, the words all and no one are extremely important. Here, we're all under sin. We've all sinned. We're all in need of God. And we're going to see in the next few verses how the words no one come up again and again and again. This final argument for the prosecution is the argument that every one of us has sinned, and so every one of us is in need of God. And beginning in verse 10, Paul brings in as a witness five Old Testament passages and puts these passages together to show that every one of us struggles with sin, has sinned, and is in need of God. Let me read for you these verses beginning in verse 10. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. No one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one 
will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. I cannot imagine a more scathing indictment of our sins. I mean, there it is for all to see as clear as a bell. We've all sinned. You look at these verses and they remind us that sin involves our whole being. It involves our mind. No one understands in verse 11. We choose not to understand. It involves our heart. No one seeks God. We choose, we desire not to seek God because we want to do our own thing. And it involves our will, what we decide. In verse 13, no one does good. We decide to do the wrong thing instead of deciding to do the right thing and seeking God. Now, some people do this in a religious way. Some people do it in a selfish way. Some people do it in an entirely sinful way. Uh, But the truth of the matter is, whenever our mind chooses not to understand and our heart chooses not to seek God and we decide to do our will rather than God's will, that is sin. And we all sin. In these verses, we're reminded that we all sin by what we say. In verses 3, 13, and 14, we've all sinned with the words that are in our mouths. It's amazing the things that we can say. You know, God has designed a snake so that it can't poison itself. It can't bite down on itself and poison itself with its own fangs. But we are not designed that way as human beings. We can poison ourselves with our own words and others, and we do it all the time. We sin by what we say. We sin by what we do. We sin by how we think. And so this time of Paul talking about our sins and the struggles we have with sins is summed up in verse 19 when he says, so that every mouth might be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. In truth, what he's saying here is, There is no defense for our sin. There's no defense for our sin. And we're all together in this. It's not as if we can point a finger at somebody else, excuse our sin through somebody else. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of God's glory. We can't save ourselves. We've all sinned. So what's the verdict? You would think it would be guilty. Well, we're going to see tomorrow God's surprising verdict. The final verdict is not what you would think it would be.